Well, ain't it great to have a worship team back? Yeah. Uh, praise God. <clears throat> God's doing some great things. Um, before we get uh, too far into this morning, um, I got a phone call this morning about, uh, about 6, 6.30, um, in regard to the shooting that occurred last night. I don't know if any of you saw it on, uh, on the news or not. But um, one of the, the families that attend our church, their son uh, was the, the man who shot the other man and tried to commit suicide by cop afterwards. Um, the young man who was shot is going to be okay. Uh, the young man who uh, attempted suicide by cop is still alive right now. They're doing surgery this morning to try to remove a bullet from his head. So uh, they asked for prayer. It's, uh, it's their son. You know, they, they love him. He needs help. Uh, he's in a lot of trouble. We want to pray for the family of the young man who was shot as well, that he would continue to recover. So I told him, as a congregation, we'd go ahead and lift him up in prayer this morning. So will you join me as we pray for him? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do pray for this young man, Mark. Lord God, we ask, Father, that your hand would be on him that you would anoint surgeons as they uh, do surgery, Father God. And Lord, I pray, God, even more than, than overcoming the, the physical aspects of his injuries. God, he needs to know you. He needs to experience your forgiveness. Father, he needs to come to a place of repentance and be renewed. Lord God, you're the only one who's able to do that. Father, we pray that you indeed would move in Mark's life. We pray for the young man who was shot. Uh, Father God, we thank you that he's going to be okay. We pray your comfort upon him and his family. Lord, we ask that, Father God, you would, uh, as your word declares, bring good through this tragedy. Lord God, we pray, Father, as as only you are able, that you would uh, just turn the ashes of our life into gold. We pray your blessing on each, your anointing upon them all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, would you open up? This morning we're going to be 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I have plans <coughs> to get uh, all the way through chapter 3. But like Paul said in chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, uh, whatever God says is okay, that's what will happen. So we'll see how the Lord guides us and leads us through it. As we take a look at 2 Corinthians we need to kind of take a step back and understand some of the things that have been going on behind the scenes since 1 Corinthians was concluded. 1 Corinthians, you'll remember, was concluded. There was a lot of issues. Paul's writing, trying to straighten out some things that were going on within the church. And then Paul heard that there was uh, uh, some deeper issues, deeper struggles. So he went to Corinth. Short visit. You'll hear Paul refer to it as a painful visit. He went, he, he went in order to try to help them straighten some things up. And while he was there, someone within the church confronted him about whether or not he had any authority as an apostle to be there at all. Paul left. It was just a short visit. He went back home and he wrote what's known as uh, the, the uh, severe letter. He wrote a severe letter about things that needed to be squared away within the church if things were going to be okay there. And so he gave this severe letter to Titus. Titus took it. Now, as we're reading 2 Corinthians, you need to picture Paul is is in Macedonia and he's eagerly awaiting word from Titus as to how things went. Were things okay? Are they still mad? Or have I... Have I lost them as, you know, friends or, or family or, as Paul looked at them, as, as his children? Have, have they continued to rebel against me or, or is everything going to be okay? And as he's waiting for that word, he writes 2 Corinthians. Now, the severe letter we don't have, if we were supposed to have it, we would. The severe letter was intended for Paul and the people he wrote it to. And God, knowing that, didn't uh, keep it around for you and me. But what he did keep around was the heart of Paul being opened 
to the, the church that he viewed as his kids. Now, you and I have all probably said this as parents, right? This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And every kid thinks you're lying until they have kids. When your children, it's the greatest revenge in the world to be in a grandpa. Because I get to be a grandpa, I'm not going to do any of the discipline. I just, I just get to be the, the happy guy. When, when our granddaughter comes to me here in a few weeks, she can have whatever she wants. She asks for it, it's hers. And my son will say things like, who is this man? He never gave me anything when I was asking him for it. And he'll get to experience parenthood. And, and in parenthood, because we love our children, folks, the Bible declares, if you love your child, you will discipline him. There's no way around it. If you love your child, you, if you do not love your child, you won't discipline. That's, that's God's word, not Jackie's. God's word declares, if you love your child, you will discipline him promptly. So there is that attitude of discipline, discipline that needs to come in a godly direction, not out of the flesh, but out of the spirit. And here we see Paul bringing that. He's, he's sharing with the church at Corinth that he loves them, but because he loves them, you know, hey guys, there's some issues, man. There's some things that, that we need to straighten out, some things we need to take care of so that our relationship can be what it needs to be. Because ultimately, isn't that what we all want from the Lord? Don't we all want that relationship with God that is exactly what it is intended to be? And so as we take a look, <coughs> excuse me, as we take a look at 2 Corinthians, realize and remember as we go through four reasons that Paul wrote this, that he laid it out. One of those is to encourage forgiveness. And that's where we're going to find ourselves this morning. Encouraging forgiveness. Because as long as we don't forgive, we empower the person who wronged us to still affect our life today. Your forgiveness isn't about that person. You understand that, right? Your forgiveness is for you. It's for you. And how, it, how it's going to affect your life. So he's going to encourage forgiveness. He's going to explain to them what happened in his plans. And, and we talked a little bit about that last week when Paul said he was going to come, but then God changed his plans. And experiencing that God calls us to be inflexible, right? We were flexible for today. Where there was a brief moment on uh, what, like Wednesday and, and uh, Thursday that we're thinking we either need to set up a tent at our house for inclement weather or change the venue over to the church. But God allowed us to have the picnic at the house today, right? So we get to, we get to hang out, go over there, uh, and have a great time this afternoon. So we're excited about that. But if the Lord had said, bad weather, not any good, then we'd have changed our plans, being flexible. And Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians. He also is writing to them for them to gather an offering for Jerusalem. He touched on that in 1 Corinthians. He's going he's gonna to finish his thought here in 2 Corinthians as well. And finally, he, he's establishing his apostolic authority. Remember, he was confronted by someone who said, you don't have the right kind of degrees. You ever ran into somebody like that? You're, you're, who makes you qualified? And Paul's going to talk about the fact that our qualification is comes from the lives that are changed by the gospel more than who has written us a letter of authority or commendation. It comes from what God's doing, how God's moving. And so, as we take a look, we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Listen, I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. See, he's referencing the painful visit. And Paul, like a good parent, Sooner or later, we get tired of harping on our kids, don't we? It's like, oh, do I really have to say, clean your room again? <laughs> yeah, you do. But like Paul, Paul is saying, listen, I don't want to come and fight. I don't want to, I want to have a blessing. I want to enjoy our time together. I didn't want to come to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who will be he who makes me glad? 
but the one who is made sorrowful by me. Paul's saying, listen, I am sorrowful because our relationship isn't okay. You, you know how that is when you have somebody that you're at odds with and you don't get no peace? You try to go to sleep that night and you toss and turn and you run the conversation over and over in your head. What I said, maybe what I should have said, what I could have said, how things could have been different. You understand how when your relationship is not right with someone else, how it just kind of messes with you and you can't find the rest that you need. And Paul's saying, listen, I I don't want to be sorrowful. I don't want to be in that place. Remember, as he's writing this letter, he's still waiting for Titus. He doesn't know how they have uh, or whether or not they've received the last one he wrote. So he's he's just kind of opening up his heart. Man, I I don't want to be sorrowful. I don't want to be at odds. I want to be unified. Jesus said we would find unity in him. Our unity will always be in Christ. And in love, he calls us to pursue peace with all people, right? What did Jesus say to do if you have a problem with a brother? Go talk to a lot of other people. And when they all agree with you, you go get them. Grab a rope. <laughs> lynch them up. Jesus said, if you have aught with your brother, go talk to your brother. So you win your brother. You make things right. Make things right with your brother. And so this is what Paul is saying to the church of Corinth. Hey, I don't want to be sorrowful because you guys are my joy, man. When we're clicking, when we're getting along, you know, when we're getting along with all our friends, we're, aren't we much happier we're filled with more joy, but if we're not okay, man, it's, it's tough. It's tough to get up and, and face another day. So, <clears throat> excuse me. And so he says, listen, I wrote this very thing to you. Lest when I came, I should have had sorrow over those with whom I should have had joy. Having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. He's saying, hey, I... I wrote this thing to you. This is what was in this letter that we don't see, that we don't have. But he's telling them, hey, guys, I want our relationship to be right. So let's make it right. You need to understand how things work and how things, uh, where the authority comes from and what's going on within the body and why I'm saying the things that I'm saying. And that's all good. But I want you to know, like a father to his children, we're having this talk because I love you. Don't we all have those kind of talks with our kids? Sit down and say, hey, you know what? I'm, I need to tell you, I need to share this with you because, because I care about you. Because I, I love you. Because I care about what happens to you. Every once in a while, Cole and I, we have those kind of talks. I say things like, you know, when you stop at a stop sign, make sure you look both ways. Before you take off. Oh, Dad. <coughs> I'm not stupid. Uh-huh. Uh, so some of you might have heard, Cole was in a hurry the other, what day was that, Friday? Friday, uh, right after the service we had for Marv, in fact, Cole took off to go get Joe, uh, get him off the bus, and he forgot to look both ways, or he didn't look very good both ways, and he pulled out in front of somebody and totaled his car. Ended up having to go to the hospital, get stitched in his ear, and get his head checked out to make sure he's okay. And all the while, Joe's not getting picked up. Kathy's phone's on silent because we were at Marv's service, and my phone's in the office. We didn't find out about it until about 6 o'clock in the evening, what had actually happened. By then, it was all over. But when, when I sit down and and I talked with Cole, and afterwards, after the accident, we sat down and talked. To be honest with you, Kathy and I are just thankful he's alive. Because uh, if it had been multiple of other ways, if he'd have got hit from the other side instead of the passenger side, he'd have died. That car is a mangled mess. But he didn't. And I can make the choice as a father to focus on the fact that he totaled his car and him. He got a ticket, it's all his fault, blah, 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 all the things that come with an accident. I can get focused on all the negative stuff where I can rejoice that my son's alive. See, that's what Paul's doing here. Hey, I don't want to just keep harping on you guys on the negative things. I want to rejoice with you that we're brethren, that we're united, that we're together, that we love each other. 
Paul says, I, this, is a, this is a relationship that he wants to have. This is a relationship that he wants to enjoy with them. So he says in verse 4, For out of much affliction and with anguish of heart, <coughs> excuse me, I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love with which I so abundantly love you. Proverbs 27, 6 tells us, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Because when you love someone, you won't just put a cover over it and and pretend like nothing's going on. A friend is going to say, hey, this is not okay, brother. And that's what Paul did. Hey, guys, it's not okay. This is not okay. But it doesn't mean I don't love you because I come to you with discipline. It means I love you that I come to you with discipline. It means that I care about you that I've said these things to you. And so Paul says, hey, when I wrote that letter to you guys, man, it was all about my, I was crying over every word. I was, I was sorrowful for you. It's a heart of Paul the pastor to his kids in Corinth. I love you guys. And I want you guys to do well. I want you guys to be okay. I want you guys to enjoy everything that God has for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. Hey, Paul's saying, listen, (coughs) this person, this event that took place, this person that called Paul out, He's saying, hey, don't worry about how that makes me feel. Think about how it looks for the whole body. Don't you love it when you turn on the news and some Christian has done something that brings shame and contempt on Christianity as a whole? Don't you love how they just love to harp on it and talk about how, oh, this so-and-so said they were a Christian, but look what they did. Or or look what we caught them doing. Or "Look look what's taking place. So Paul's saying, listen, it's not so much about how this affects me. It's, it's how it affects us all. And here's what he's going to tell us. And here's something I think we need to realize. A lot of times we spend a lot of time pointing at the world and saying, look at what's wrong with the world. But they're just acting like the world. Aren't they? What ought we be doing? We ought to be looking at ourselves. We ought to be looking within us. Hey, I say I follow Christ. Does my life bear out? Does it show the marks of Christ? And to recognize, even as we pray for revival, even as we pray for God to move, for God to do incredible things in and among us, God wants us to look inside ourselves. Sure, the world's messed up. It's supposed to be. It's the world. But those of us gathered together under the banner of Christ, we we should be different. I may not have the strength in and of myself to be everything I need to be, but can't we as a body stand together? Can't we strengthen one another? Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? And that's what Paul's saying. Hey, I came and there's this big ruckus and so-and-so called me out and, and nobody really stepped up to it and nobody said anything and, hey guys, it's not all right. We're supposed to be standing together. And if something's wrong, we, we fix what's wrong and we move forward. So he's calling us to have that kind of an attitude. If, <coughs> you want to give me your water? Yeah. <laughs> You're all right, baby. I don't care what anybody says. Oh, too much hollering. You should have seen me work in that playground. Leaning on my shovel and explaining what needed to go where. <clears throat> I'm pretty wore out from all that. So is Jeff. He was sitting in the tractor. And I was leaning on the shovel telling the tractor where to go. And his kids running around with shovels and doing all this stuff. And man, it was great. That's living. Oh, okay, let's see how that works. So, as we go on, Scripture is going to declare to us, but this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. So, the church took action on what happened. Now, 
Some people refer this verse back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 about that guy that was caught in an incestuous relationship. Paul said, hey, you guys need to deal with him. And then Paul's going to say, now what you did was good. That's good. Now you need to restore him. Now, whether it's talking about that guy or another instance doesn't really matter. What's the point he's going to bring out? In the church, we got something against our brother. We take it to our brother. Our brother repents. Our job is to restore. That's it. That's what God wants. That's what God does with you. That's what God's done with me. So God wants us to restore. The key is repentance. What does repentance mean? Repent means change direction. Change the direction. Yeah, you know what? You're right. This is not good behavior, whatever the case is. I'm going to change my direction. Now, that's not lo- no longer the brother with whom there was a problem. Now, that's my beloved brother. The problem's gone. It's over. It's squashed. It's done. So Paul's saying, listen, with the majority of you guys, what, the, the punishment that was done was taken is sufficient. It's good. Great job. But listen, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Paul's going to begin to talk now about forgiveness. Forgiveness is important. Forgiveness is important because God said, if you will not forgive, I will not forgive you. By the way, folks, that is a big problem. You know, you and I, we don't forgive. It doesn't really hurt anybody but us. Should God choose not to forgive us? Well, that's another matter altogether, isn't it? God calls us to forgive. Our problem is we say, well, we think forgiveness means I'm saying it's okay. What you did is okay. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness means I'm turning that brother or sister or person over into the hands of God, trusting that God's going to do Uh, what's right in their life, and I'm not carrying bitterness about it no more. That's forgiveness. I'm not going to walk around complaining, squawking, doing whatever we tend to do when we're holding unforgiveness in our heart. We're supposed to forgive. He says he's going to give us three reasons to forgive. The first one, for the sake of the one for whom this event has taken place. For example... This man that had been caught in sin, disciplined by the church, repented. Paul says you need to forgive him. You need to forgive him and restore him, lest uh, sorrow overwhelm him. There comes a point when we're holding bitterness or we're holding resentment, we're holding something against someone else, that it is going to hinder their ability to return to the grace of God. I don't ever want to stop someone from being able to return to the grace of God. God allowed me to return to him in his grace. Freely I receive, freely give. You remember the story Jesus told, right? Jesus said, hey, there was a fella owed the king a million dollars. And he came before the king to pay. And the king said, hey, you need to pay up. And the guy said, oh, give me some more time, please. Just give me a little bit more time. I'll be able to do it. The king was moved with compassion. And he said, you know what? Forget about it. You don't owe me nothing. And he turned him loose. And that fellow went out into the street and he saw someone who owed him 10 bucks. And he snatched him up and said, hey, it's payday. You need to pay me back what you owe me. And the fellow that owed him 10 bucks said, oh, please just give me a little bit more time. I just need a little bit more time and I'll be able to pay you back. And he said, no more time for you. He grabbed him and threw him in prison for the 10 bucks that he was owed. But someone who knew the king was watching. He went back to the king and he said, you know that guy you forgave a million bucks? He just threw a dude in prison for ten. And the king went back and found him. I forgave you and you won't forgive this, this small issue? Okay. Then you go to prison until you paid back every dime. That's what unforgiveness does for us. Puts us in bondage. It puts us in prison. It confines our ability to do things that God wants to do through us. And it confines someone else too. 
So Paul says, listen, for the sake of your brother who has repented so that he wouldn't have sorrow that's too much to handle, swallowed up in his sorrow, forgive him. You forgive him. Turn him over to the Lord. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. What is it? How will they know we are his disciples? By our ability to to dole out church discipline? That's not what it says. Reaffirm, yeah. You're next, brother. (laughs) Therefore, I urge you, reaffirm your love to him. You show your love when you forgive. God calls us to be forgiving. In verse 9, then he gives us another reason. For this, for to this end I also wrote, that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. He says, listen, now the next reason I want you to forgive him is because it shows your obedience to Christ. For the Lord's sake. It shows obedience. Didn't the Lord tell us to forgive? Yeah. He calls us to forgive. So, for the Lord's sake, are you obedient in all things? But Jack, you don't know what he did. No, it doesn't matter. God doesn't tell us, well, you only have to forgive if you think it's okay. He says you need to forgive all the time. Because when you walk around with unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart, drinking poison, waiting for someone else to die, it don't work. It just ruins you. So in obedience to Christ, oh, I'm obedient. I'm so spiritual, but I'm holding on to this unforgiveness. No, but they really did me wrong. Well, I'm sure they did. We really did the Lord wrong. Yet he's forgiven us. So we're called to forgive. To lay it aside, to put aside the bitterness, that root of bitterness that will destroy us, to lay it down and forgive. Scripture lays out for us, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. That means we give it to God. But what if God doesn't do anything? Isn't that what Jonah was so upset about? Remember Jonah, right? That's that fellow that got swallowed by the whale or the big fish. He got swallowed by the big fish because he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Got caught in a storm. While he's in the storm, the the sailors are all come to him. What should we do? Seems like God's mad. Jonah said, he's mad at me. Just throw me out of the boat. Now, what do you think Jonah said that for? You think he was thinking there'll be a big fish to swallow me? Nah, he's thinking, I'll show the Lord. Throw me out of the boat. I'll die here. You have to send somebody else to Nineveh. I don't want to go anyway. So they threw him out of the boat. And he's probably not even trying to swim. Looking at an opportunity to gulp up as much water as possible. And here comes this big old fish. Now that kind of freaked you out, wouldn't it? Where I might be okay with drowning, I'm not okay with being eaten. (laughs) So this big fish comes by and swallows him. Takes him to the shores of Nineveh. And pukes him up on the shore. Now, what a way to be delivered by the Lord, huh? (laughs) And and so, it's interesting because uh, in the science journal, they actually found a guy that, that survived in a fish. And one of the things that marked his survival was the fact that the... The stomach acid of the fish took all his hair off his body and bleached him a bright white. So here comes... Jonah into Nineveh. Okay, Lord, I'll go tell him. No hair on his entire body, bleached bright white. He preaches one message. Repent or judgment will come in 40 days. That's it. And the people at the sight of him and hearing that word, they dropped to their knees in sackcloth and ashes and repented. You remember what Jonah did next? He climbed up on top of this mountain to look down over the people, hoping the fire would come from heaven and devour them all. And as he sat up there, he started to get mad at God. God, why did you not kill him? I knew you were going to do this. Stinking forgiven people all over the place. 
I knew that was going to happen. And the Lord sent a, a, a little vine to grow. And as the vine grew, it put a little shade over his head. So he laid his head down in that shade and he was all bitter with God. Let them people live. They're good for nothing, man. There's nothing good going to come from this. You mark my words. Should have struck them with fire from heaven and burned them all up. We ever said that before? Does this sound familiar? Why don't we just drop a big old bomb and turn that whole desert into a sheet of glass? All that arguing be over. One fell swoop. A bright light. Everything's gone. Jonah sat under that bush. And then it says the Lord prepared a worm. And the worm went and ate the bush. And the bush died. So the hot sun was on his head. And Jonah laying there and started crying. Oh, Lord. Just kill me. The bush is gone. Jonah, you're crying over a bush? Do you know, Jonah, that down in that city that you call for judgment over, that there are more than 10,000 who do not know their right hand from the left. But now they got an opportunity. Now they got a chance. And that Jonah just ends. Doesn't ever tell us what Jonah did, what Jonah did about what the Lord said to him, where he went from there. Because every one of us can put ourselves in the same place. Vengeance is mine, says, says the Lord. Will you trust God with it? But what if God forgives? We gave it to him, right? You put it in God's hands and you let it go. And you forgive. For the Lord's sake, it shows our obedience unto him. To see if we are obedient in all things. <clears throat> in verse 11 he said, Lest Satan should take advantage of us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. Yeah, what happens? How does, how does Satan divide and conquer? He comes along in those little areas in your life of unforgiveness. Those little areas of bitterness. And he prods and he pokes and that sore stays sore all the time. Never seems to heal. Because we're always playing around with it. We're always acting like, oh, this is so horrible, this event that's taking place. And we are placed in bondage. And Satan uses it to, to divide bodies today. People that still can't squash whatever this event that took place. I know people who don't go to church anymore because somebody in the church did something wrong to them. Man, that, that don't make no sense. It don't make no sense. Satan uses that. Now what happens to you? Now you're off by yourself. Think about that, that herd of uh, gazelles in Africa. Is that where gazelles are? Yeah. And this gazelle's out there, and here's this big old hungry lioness, like the devil, right? The roaring lion seeking who he will devour. Does he just pile into that big old herd, or does he look for that fellow that's just straggling off by himself? He looks for the ones just hanging out by himself, doing his own thing. And then he rips them off, and he takes them down. Man, Satan does that over and over and over and over. And the root of it all, Paul says, comes back to unforgiveness. You've got to squash it. Lay aside. Be willing to forgive and experience everything that God wants. Why? Because it affects the church. That's the third reason. Forgive for, for your sake, for the person's sake, for Christ's sake, for the church. That affects the body. And Satan uses it to divide bodies today. We probably all know stories of a church that's been divided. What was it divided over? Something dumb that people were unwilling to forgive one another about. Now in the city you have two churches and a bunch of people talking. Oh yeah, that used to be one church. Now it's two. They used to be together, but now they're apart. You know, because them Christians, they can't never get along. You guarantee yourself an argument. You put two Christians in a room. Our unity is supposed to be in Christ. And in forgiveness, we should see God restore. God put all those things back together again. We don't want to give Satan a foothold. Verse 12, he goes on. Now, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, a door was opened up to me by the Lord. 
Now, maybe you remember Troas. Troas was a place. Paul's kind of looking for places to go minister, and the Lord keeps stopping him. And in Troas, God gives him a vision to go into Macedonia. And so he goes into Macedonia from Troas. Now, he finds himself back in Troas, and the door has been open, and he's ministering. People are getting saved. Maybe he's even found in a church. So part of the reason why he hasn't gone back and spent more time with the church at Corinth is God's opened up this door for him in Troas. But as this door was opened up and as Paul's ministering, in verse 13 he says, But I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus, my brother. Now remember what I told you. Titus had taken the severe letter. And so Paul's ministering. But because things weren't right between him and the, and the church at Corinth, Paul had a restless spirit. We've all been there, haven't we? And he's waiting to hear from Titus. Are we okay or are we not okay? Is things going to be all right? What do I got to do? I got to go back over there and get in a big fight. Or are they going to receive the word of God and allow the word of God to affect their life and us to move forward? So Paul's restless. He's restless because things aren't right. He's restless because he doesn't know what's going on with Titus. Is Titus okay? Is Titus not okay? I don't know what to do. He's got this restlessness in his spirit. And so Scripture goes on to tell him uh, in, in verse 14, but thanks, or I'm sorry, let me back up just a minute. I had no rest in my spirit because I did not find Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I departed for Macedonia. So Paul leaves Troas, goes to Macedonia. Even though his spirit's upset, even though he hasn't as yet, he's going to hear back from Titus soon, but even though as yet he hadn't heard back from Titus, he doesn't know how things are going, he's still moving forward with the Lord. He still wants to do whatever it is that God has for him to do. (laughs) His spirit is uneasy. He's upset. He's frustrated. His heart is burdened for those with whom he wants to be right with again. And so even as his heart's burdened and he's looking for that, he is still saying, Lord, what's next? I had a friend one time. We came up in youth ministry together and he would occasionally not show up to youth group. And so I'd call him and say, bro, where are you at? He's one of my leaders, you know, and and he'd say, oh, you know what, me and my wife, we got in a, in a spat, and I didn't want to come be a hypocrite in youth group and, and try to talk to the kids, so I stayed home. Oh, so you let the devil win. So the devil got in, he got a little wedge in between you and mama, and rather than squashing it, forgiving it, moving forward and saying, hey, I'm a person just like everybody else, and sometimes I argue with my wife, and sometimes I get angry at my kids and sometimes I do dumb things and using God allowing God to minister through the things that are going on in your life you just stayed home Paul could have said I'm so upset I don't know what to do I'm just going to curl up in a little ball here and sit in my little solitary confinement and I'll be happy wouldn't we all like to do that sometimes hey I'd love to just I could be a hermit that's Kathy. <laughs> I could be a hermit. Sometimes I like, I like solitude for, for some things anyway. I like to be in, a, in, a, in that place. And in my, my habit would be when things are not okay to just curl up in a ball and, and wait for it all to go away. But that's not how God calls us, is it? He doesn't tell us to be an ostrich and put your head in the sand and wait for things to get better. I never quite understood that anyway. You know, when ostrich puts his head in the sand, his whole back end is sticking out. <laughs> Somebody's going to come along and just boot that. <laughs> so I don't want to go along like that. I want to, in, in the Lord's strength, do whatever's next. There have been times I've made phone calls... Unfortunately, when I was over at JS, occasionally I was the guy who, who got the job of firing people, and that's never fun. I never woke up and said, yippee, I get to go ruin somebody's life today. But <coughs> sometimes you still have to do it. 
And you still have to move forward and you still have to come with a, a spirit and an attitude of love. I thought the best thing, well, nobody ever liked being fired by me. I, I don't know if I was sensitive enough. But Pastor Bob and Kathy, when Kathy was working at the thrift store, Kathy was managing a thrift store in Yucca Valley and, and uh, some things happened and they had to uh, fire an employee. And Pastor Bob went with her, you know, just to be support as she was dealing with this problem with an employee. And when it was all said and done, Pastor Bob says, man, when I get fired, I want Kathy to fire me. <laughs> he said, he said the, the people don't even really realize they got fired. It was so nice and, and pleasant. Like, wow. Oh, yeah, I know I'm leaving, but I really feel good about it. <laughs> So when we do those things that God wants us to do, pleasant or unpleasant, Paul here, his, his, his spirit, you can't, can't you sense his spirit's unsettled? But yet he said, hey, I, I said goodbye to these guys and I went on. I went on because God still wants us to keep moving forward. He still wants us to continue to do the work he's called us to. And so as, as Paul goes on, look what he says. And so... Thanks be to God. Now, you, you hear all this unquietness in his spirit and, and, and frustration and, and uh, unsureness and all that stuff that we all deal with. And for me, it's kind of cool to see the Apostle Paul feel the same way that we do sometimes. But then, how does he, how does he transition from one to the other? He told us in that little phrase, now thanks be to God. Just going to the Lord with a heart of thanksgiving changes our entire attitude. Being thankful even though. Like I was telling you when I shared with you about coal, I could focus on the wrecked car and the insurance going up 500% or whatever they're going to do and all this stuff. I can focus on all that or I can say I'm thankful that my son is still here. We make a choice. Make a choice to be thankful. And Paul says, man, I thank God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. He doesn't feel all that triumphant right now. He doesn't feel as though all the pieces are fitting together. Now, in, a, in another chapter, he's gonna, we're going to see all those pieces come together. But in the meantime, he says, you know what? I thank God because he leads me into triumph. Because God is good. We are we." folks as believers fight from victory not for victory you understand the difference we fight from victory he already won but sometimes we act like we're we're barely hanging on and and we're looking in the face of defeat any moment but paul says thanks be to god who who always leads us into triumph who always leads us forward what's he picturing Folks, he's, he's picturing a Roman triumph. Roman triumph worked like this. If a general attained a great victory where he slaughtered at least 5,000 soldiers of the enemy and gained property for Caesar, they would throw him a ticker tape parade called a triumph. In that triumph, you would see the, that general riding a golden chariot. And behind him, all of his soldiers... And between them would be all the spoils of battle. And they would come through the town and they'd be all praising and people would be yelling and, and hooting and hollering. And then they'd come up to the, to the Colosseum. And all the prisoners would be let out at the Colosseum and go into the Colosseum and, and fight the, the wild animals in there, be slaughtered, what have you. This was the Roman triumph. Now Paul says, but listen, Christ leads us, the body, the church, in triumph. When did, when did Christ get the victory over 5,000? Well, the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved. And then shortly after that, another 2,000, and then 5,000 were added. So he's definitely, we've seen that. Now, how many, how many millions of people owe their salvation to, to the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for them. So Paul says he always leads us in triumph. And Paul saying, I'm like that soldier. There's the Lord. He's leading. I'm following him. I'm following him. The battle was tough. The battles were tough, but we have the victory. 
We have the victory. God's done an incredible work in our lives. <coughs> Scripture goes on now. And through us, he diffuses a fragrance of his knowledge in every place. So through you and me, people come to know Jesus Christ. They get to know who he is, what he's like. What's God like from us? One of the most sobering things I ever learned was my children's first picture of what it is to what the, who God the Father is to them will be me as their father. That will be how they picture God the Father at the beginning of it, their understanding of him. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? Whoa. Who through you and I diffuses the knowledge of God. Through you and I, we affect people's lives by what we say, what we do, where we go. If we hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness, we, we diffuse in a negative sense, right? If we learn to forgive and walk in the victory, then we diffuse in a positive sense. We're bringing around that, that true understanding of who God is and what he's done. We get an opportunity to do that. God wants us to be able to diffuse the knowledge of God through you and me, not just me. Well, that's Jackie's job. He preached every Sunday morning. Yeah, who's preaching Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, Saturday? That's our job. Our life is lived out worship to the Lord. It's our reasonable service. What, we, what Jesus has given us is his gift to us. Our gift to him is what we give back. He gave us eternal life. He gave us grace. He gave us salvation. What are we doing with it? What are we doing with it? Like these soldiers that were following the Roman general is the power of that Roman general, or in this case, Jesus Christ, just flowing through us to the people around us, affecting those who are watching, who are coming alongside. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ. Now, if you study the book of Leviticus, that should bring certain pictures in your mind. For example... Over and over again, when the Lord speaks of the sacrifice, he calls it a sweet-smelling aroma to God. That sacrifice, a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Here he says, you and I, we are the fragrance of Christ. Do you smell like Jesus? The things you do, do you look like Jesus? Do we act like him? Do we take on nature? Because listen, guys, Psalm 139 says, Psalm 139 tells us that people worship idols that have eyes carved into them, but they can't see. Mouths carved into them, but they can't speak. Arms and legs carved into them, but they can't walk or move. And the Lord says, those who worship them are like them. In the negative sense, we become like the gods we serve. In the positive sense, we become like the God we serve. We become like Jesus. So we are the fragrance of Christ. Now let's think back just a, a few days before the crucifixion. An event took place. Jesus said of this event that people forever would talk about it. That event was a woman coming in to the room where Jesus was, breaking open an alabaster box and anointing him for burial. There are so many amazing things about that story. Like, here's Mary, Mary, <clears throat> many think Mary Magdalene, coming in, anointing Jesus Christ. Did she know he was going to die? Did she get what all the disciples missed? I don't know. Jesus said, she's anointed me for my burial. But it's four days before the crucifixion. The unique thing about the oil of spikenard which, with which she anointed Christ, one part of that is it would, be, it would have been uh, uh, used one time in your life. It would cost a fortune poured out upon the head of, of 
Jesus Christ, anointing him. <clears throat> they went to, to Judas. That's the first time we see Judas speak. He says, why? Why did she do this? Judas says, she's done this for my burial. But listen, beyond that, Jesus is anointed. Sweet-smelling aroma of the oil of spikenard. That perfume was so pungent, it would last for weeks. Four days later, Jesus is tied to a post where they are beating him with the cat of nine tails. Some people say he received 39 lashes because 39 is the number of mercy. 40 is what they are supposed to receive. But that's a Jewish tradition. That's not Roman. Romans, when they beat, they would beat you until you confessed. And they would beat you until you confessed. The more you confessed, the lighter the beating got. Do you remember what Isaiah says about the beating that Jesus received? As a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. There was no sin to confess, right? While they were beating him, and one of the scenes I liked about the movie The Passion is after the, the flogging of Jesus, you see Mary and, 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 and Mary Magdalene and the others sopping up the blood of Jesus. So that people weren't just trampling through it like it was nothing. Then after that, the <clears throat> Pilate stands them up before the people, hoping they'll be appeased. He doesn't look like a man anymore. He's filleted. Skin is missing. His internal organs are visible from the outside. And as they look at him, Pilate says, Behold the man, Eke homo. And as they look at him, the people shout still with more anger in their heart, crucify him. So they take him, lay him on a cross, separate his, his shoulders as they attach him and drop the cross in the hole, put in that back that just been filleted on a rough wooden cross and stick it in the ground. Over and over again, we've seen different things that bring about for you and I the horror of that event. But that's not the point that we're trying to, to discuss this morning. Now, if you close your eyes, if you were Mary, the mother of Jesus, standing beside John at the foot of the cross, if you close your eyes and forgot about the horror that you watched as every drop of blood in his body would be leaked out, the suffering that he would take, if you stopped and breathed in through your nose, you could still smell the oil of spikenard with which Mary had anointed Jesus. He was a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. And here Paul says... We are the fragrance of Christ. We are the fragrance of Christ. Listen, the fragrance of Christ was more pungent during times of suffering than any other time. You know, the light of Christ burns brighter in our breasts the more difficult the times are that we face. It burns brighter. He, we become more like Him in those times. Oftentimes we cry out to God, why? Why has life got to be so hard? But God knows how we're made. That's when we blossom. That's when we bloom. That's when God does an incredible work in and through us. <clears throat> For we are to God the fragrance of Christ. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Remember, in the triumph, in that parade... You had those who were victorious and those who were defeated. Here he says, we are the fragrance to everyone, to the saved and to the perishing, the fragrance of Christ. To one, we are the aroma of death leading to death. To the other, the aroma of life leading to life. You ever gone and shared the word with somebody? And seeing how much they hate God? 
the word that you bring to them that is meant to bring life doesn't. They reject the word. They reject the truth. And in that rejection, the word we brought only condemns. You turn on a light and the cockroaches scatter. Well, hopefully not in your house and not in mine. Kathy wouldn't allow us to have any cockroaches. But in the life, in the life of a believer, when we shine a light, those who are not willing, are not open, do not want to receive, they scatter, they don't want to hear nothing about it. And to them, we are the aroma of death. Oh, them, them, them Christians stink. Just keep them away from me. But to those who are being saved, it's the aroma of life. The aroma didn't change, just the heart of the one who was going to receive, right? The heart of the one that is uh, closed to the Lord, it's an aroma of death. It smells terrible. Oh, it's horrible. That bloody religion, always talking about the cross and the blood of Christ. But to the ones who are being saved, that's not how it looks to us, right? Becomes that sweet smelling aroma, the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? Well, he answers the question in chapter 3, verse 5. Our sufficiency is from God. When he asks the question, who is sufficient for these things, for this triumph, for this victory, which of us have added anything to it? None of us. None of us have done anything to bring about the salvation that Christ wrought on the cross. We are just tools in the master's hand, fit for his use, so that God can use us, so that he can diffuse the knowledge of Christ through us, so that he can bring forward the fragrance of Christ in our lives, so that people come to know him. Which of us was sufficient for that? Which of us, you know, God said, wow, I'm sure lucky to have you. None of us. Our sufficiency is from God. God does the work. He chooses to use us. Man, that's a blessing. It's a blessing that God desires to use us, but our sufficiency is found in Him. Our sufficiency is in God. Will we take a look at the, the desire that the Lord has for us today? First, to be willing to forgive, to make relationships right. And then he goes on to talk about how in those right relationships or while those relationships are still rocky, God calls us still move forward, still do the things that God wants us to do and realize that we're fighting for victory and that we're diffusing the knowledge of Christ and that we're giving the scent of Christ. And that's what our lives are supposed to be all about. And as we trust in Christ, we'll find in chapter 3 as we go on, we'll find that God is everything we need. He'll bridge the gap anywhere that we fall short. And before you panic, I know there's one more verse, but we ain't doing it today. We're going to pick that up in chapter 3. But as we take a look, we want to, we want to allow God to do that work in and through us. Guys, I, I so firmly believe that God's moving us to a place, an opportunity within our community to do some really great things and that God wants us to move and that God wants us to, to be in that victorious parade giving out the fragrance of Christ and the, and the knowledge of Christ and being like Christ. But he, before we got to that, we had to come to the place where we set aside all our bitterness and all our unforgiveness and experience truly what God has for us. The reason Paul's able to move forward is he wasn't bitter. And he wasn't holding unforgiveness. Now he was still uneasy because he didn't know yet about the church of Corinth if they were going to be okay. But he was okay. Because he kept Christ in that rightful place. So this morning as we close out in worship and as we just desire to press into the Lord, have a neat time, a picnic over at our place this afternoon, before all that Fun happens. We got an opportunity, if we're holding on to bitterness or unforgiveness, 
to leave it at the altar today and move forward in the freedom that Christ wants to bring in our life. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for this time. We thank you for the truth of your word. Father, we thank you for those things that you desire to do in our lives. And Father, we also realize that sometimes those things you want to do in our lives, we affect because we're holding on to unforgiveness or we're holding on to bitterness or we're we're not allowing you to do what you want to do in our life. And so Satan gets a foothold and he divides us. But God, we want you to move. We want you to, to change our lives from inside out. We want you to be glorified and magnified in the lives that we lay out before you. So, Father, we desire, if there is any root of bitterness or unforgiveness in our heart, that we would confess that one to another and be set free. That we would leave it at your feet and move forward into the victory where we can be a right representation of who you are. So God, we just desire, even as we we close in this final song, we desire that your spirit would move through the body. And as we gather in this place for prayer, Father, we just ask God that you would encourage us. Encourage us, Lord Jesus, to lay aside all those things that are hindering us from moving forward. And experience the victory that you have. So Lord we seek Father. Your guidance. Your touch. Your blessing. As you move in this place. In Jesus name we pray. Amen.